in the current cycle of readings that we're going through in the lectionary for the, the gospel at Sunday, we normally will read from the gospel of Mark throughout this year. But in the middle of this year, there's always a little break in the summer where we read from the sixth chapter of St. John's gospel, the so-called bread of life discourse, where John gives us his teaching of Jesus on the Eucharist. And so for the next several weeks, we'll be going through this long kind of <clears throat> sermon and the accounts of Jesus and the famous lines where Jesus, speaking of the Eucharist, says, this is truly my flesh, this is truly my blood, unless you eat my flesh and drink you, my blood, you have no life in you. Um, so I think it's, on the one hand, uh, important to look at those scriptures as we go through them, particularly today as we see that uh, recent polls, for what they're worth, seem to indicate that of the Catholics that actually even go to Mass on any kind of regular basis, up to 70% don't believe or at least don't understand that the Eucharist really is Jesus. It's not just a symbol. The bread and wine after the consecration, there's no bread and wine left. It is only the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. A lot of people don't understand that. And so it might be good to uh, reflect on that over these, these upcoming Sundays. But I, I particularly would, would like to take this time to, to focus a little bit on the Mass itself and why it is that we, we do what we do, where does the Mass come from, and particularly uh, to have in mind uh, the desire of the, the Second Vatican Council in the, the 1960s that everyone who participates in the Mass would participate with full, conscious, and actual participation. Fully means we're, we're all in it, but that conscious part, conscience, it means with knowledge, scientia, science, it's, it's knowledge. So I, I'd like to hopefully over these, these next couple weeks, uh, look at the various kind of parts of the mass and, and talk about why we do what we do so that we can have more, more knowledge and that would lead to our actual participation in it. That if we understand it better, then we will hopefully participate more, more fully and more actually. So right at the beginning, uh, as I say, why do we do what we do? Uh, I suppose it's important to, to talk about, well, who is we? Uh, because the Catholic Church uh, is, is actually, well, it's, it's a group of churches. You know, there's, we often think of, well, the, the church is, it's just Catholic, right? Yes, but within the one big Catholic Church, there are actually 24 little churches. Uh, the one that we belong to, most of us probably, is what is known as the Latin church or the, the Western church. But there are 23 Eastern Catholic churches. Churches of their own law are in Latin suiuris. A lot of people may have a vague idea that the Eastern Catholic churches exist, such as the Ukrainian Catholic church, the Ruthenian Catholic church, the Maronite church, the Syro-Malabar church. There are 23 of them. And each of them have their, their own version of the, the liturgy or what they would call the, the uh, divine mysteries or the divine liturgy. Well, it's confusing. I know, maybe you didn't even know that there are 24 Catholic churches. Reminds me of this uh, little thing I saw, a YouTube video on the internet. There was a fictitious American soccer coach who goes over to England to coach in the, uh, the uh, English Premier League soccer league. This is... Uh, been brought into a TV series today. Uh, Ted Lasso is the name of the hypothetical fictional coach. And he gets over there to the United Kingdom 
and he's talking about this country of the United Kingdom and someone is from Wales and they say, well, that's a country too. It's like, wait a minute, Wales is a country? How many countries are in this country? And of course they say, well, four, because England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are four countries and they're, they're all in the one country of the United Kingdom. How many countries are in this country? Four. Well, how many churches are in this Catholic church? 24. I know, it's confusing. But I say that just to say that the, uh, the unity that we have in the one holy Catholic apostolic church, as St. Paul says, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Within that unity, there's actually quite a lot of diversity uh, because Jesus instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper, and that's, that's what's common to everything. Some point in the liturgy, the priest will take bread and wine and repeat the words of Jesus over it. This is my body, this is my blood, and at that point, there's no bread and wine left. That's called transubstantiation, at least in the West, where it's completely changed. That happens everywhere in the Catholic Church. But all the other stuff that goes along with it, the ceremonies, the particular prayers that are prayed, uh, the, the music that is used, all that, it, it varies somewhat. There's the, there's the Latin church that we belong to, but then there, there are 23 other Eastern churches and they have their own traditions about how the, the divine liturgy works. So just want to throw that out there right at the beginning uh, to say that what we do uh, is pretty big, but from now on, I'm going to focus on the, the Latin church. That's, that's us. So where does what we do, where does that come from? As I said, it starts with Jesus at the Last Supper, but Jesus didn't give us the full, like, ceremonies, do this, do that. He himself was, was following the, the Jewish law at the time because he, he instituted the Eucharist in the context of the Passover, which had its own rules and regulations as to how you worship God. But from that, over these years, the church kind of established this is the way that, that we will surround this institution of the Eucharist with certain prayers, music, chants, and that became what is known as the Roman Missal, that red book that sits there on the altar. Essentially, the, the version that came to be throughout most of our history was pretty well established as a fixed form by about the fifth, though later than the sixth century. Um, Augustine would have known essentially the Roman Missal. And Pope Gregory the Great, he's the one for which Gregorian chant is named, if you know the word Gregorian chant. Pope Gregory the Great died in the year 605. Essentially, the Roman Missal was fixed by his time. And then it was handed on. Why did we do what we do? Well, because this is what we've been given. The word tradition, traditio in Latin, it means to hand on. So Pope Gregory the Great handed on the Missal and said, this is what we're going to do. And it got handed on and handed on. And eventually uh, it became so well used throughout the world that in the 16th century, at the Council of Trent, Pope Pius V said, this is the Missal, this and no other. It's important to, I think, you know, know that it's not just a matter of history, but to know that that means that what we do as Catholics in our worship, it's not something that somebody just made up yesterday or even a couple years ago to decide, well, this might be kind of neat to do. Why don't we try this at Mass? We don't do that. We, we recognize something that, you know, a lot of other non-Catholic churches wouldn't recognize, 
And that is to say that we don't decide what the liturgy should look like. To some extent, we say, God told us, this is how I want to be worshipped. This is what you are to do. And we do what the church has always done. That, uh, that missile uh, was handed down for centuries. In fact, uh, a few years ago, before COVID, I was over in Siena, Italy. And in the, the big cathedral there, uh, they had a, a kind of a, an exhibit of various copies of the Roman Missal throughout history. And I went, I saw one that was over a thousand years old. Uh, but because I, I had learned to celebrate the Latin Mass, uh, I, I recognized exactly what page that missile was turned to. I knew what feast day that was. And it kind of made me feel good and, and Catholic to know that I could take that, that missile that was a thousand years old, I could take it right out of that museum, take it to the altar, and celebrate Mass with it and use it, because I, I know how to celebrate the, the older form, the Latin Mass. I thought, that is incredibly Catholic, to say that, yeah, if I had celebrated Mass with that missile, it would look exactly like a priest who celebrated a thousand years ago. It, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. That's, that's Catholic. And it's like, you know, doctrinally speaking, if we were to go to the, the library and grab one of the volumes of the writings of the, the church fathers off the shelf, you know, say, say I were to grab, you know, Justin Martyr from the second century off the shelf and I opened it up to one of his homilies. I could preach that homily this Sunday. I could say exactly the same thing Justin Martyr said and people today, 2000 years later, would say, yeah, that's what we believe. That's what we believe today. I could, I could pull Augustine off the shelf or Anselm or Thomas Aquinas, any of these great writers, open it up and say, yeah, that's, that's what we believe. It's just as good today as it was, you know, a thousand years ago. It's beautiful that we can do that with our liturgy too. To, I could pull that Roman Missal out of the museum and say, yep, this is what we still do. And that was true all the way up to the time of the Second Vatican Council when uh, this, this book that we have today is actually quite a bit different uh, from the, the previous one. For, we made some changes that are, are a bit different and that's why sometimes today you, you have a lot of people who wanna make sure that the, the older form uh, continues. Uh, that's an important part of our history. But regardless, the important thing to, to kind of take away from there spiritually to help us pray the mass better is to say that I didn't make this up. I'm not doing this because it makes me feel better or because I, I like doing this or I prefer this or that. Uh, there is a, a certain Catholicness, not just in across all the world to know that we use the same mass, but throughout time, a Catholicness of, of time to know that this has been universal throughout time. So on the one hand, that's a good thing. It's a blessing that we have that. But let me also acknowledge that it, it's also a difficulty because when it comes to praying to God or having a relationship with God, well, maybe the, the fixed prayers of, of the mass are like, well, it didn't, doesn't quite do it for you. Maybe the Gregorian chant and the, the fixed prayers and the stand here and sit then, and, it, and it's, all, it's all so scripted and, and confining. Well, you'd be right to say that, well, I, that's not enough for me. I know it's not enough for me. Mass, the Second Vatican Council teaches us, is the high point. It is the summit, the source and the summit of the Christian life. So we, we come here as, as you know, going to the top of a mountain. Absolutely, it is the summit. But it's not the totality of what we need in the Catholic Christian life. I, for me, yeah, when I'm celebrating mass, I love, I love the Gregorian chant, I love the incense, I love the, the formal worship to know I'm doing what's been done for over a thousand years, great. But I need more than that. So when I'm in my car, 
Uh, I am not normally listening to Gregorian chant. I'm normally the guy at the stoplight who has my contemporary Christian turned up. I've got K-Love on or 88.5, and I am just singing my little heart out to some contemporary song. Uh, I, I love to, to get out my, my trumpet and, and play music here. I love to, to sing. And a lot of times when I'm just singing to Jesus, uh, it's, it's probably like Matt Maurer or something on K-Love or something like that. Um, I need that. I'm like more of an emotional kind of guy. And so I'm more charismatic. And in my prayer to Jesus more personally, I'm more likely to throw my hands up in the air and be crying and, you know, praying my rosary and reading the scriptures. And I have a, a, I have a pretty strange faith life. I actually don't peer too much into it. It's weird. People at stoplights will see me in my car. They're like, what are you doing? Like, I'm singing to Jesus, you know? So we need all that too. Uh, mass is certainly the summit and the source. It is not the be-all, end-all. It is not the totality of Catholic life. So if you feel like Mass is a little too confining, why do we have to follow the rules? Well, because Mass is the Mass, but then there's everything else. So keep that in mind, too, as a good principle, that what we do in Mass is not only fixed throughout time, it's also fixed throughout place, so that we can have some kind of, of unity uh, in, in the way that we, we worship. Okay, so with all that ha having been said then, I'd like to, to begin today, in the last kind of part of this homily, to, to look at some of the parts of the Mass. And that's what I'll continue over the next couple of weeks, to look at the various parts and say, well, why do we do what we do? In a lot of cases, it goes back because that's what we've always done. Uh, but it's also some of the things that we think maybe are just kind of like throwaway gestures. Well, they have a, a pretty deep, Catholic history, and maybe if we want to pray more fully, consciously, and actually, it helps to know what are these things, where they come from. So today I want to just end by looking briefly at what are known as the introductory rites, the things that happen just first at Mass, right off the bat. So I mentioned uh, Gregorian chant and the music of the Mass. That's a, that's a whole thing in its own. But let me just uh, start by, by saying something we don't think about a whole lot that each, each Mass, so it's got its own page in, in the Roman Missal there, uh, the first thing you'll see is uh, what you might see in your Missal as the entrance antiphon. There, there's a whole other book that has all the music that goes with Mass, that Gregorian chant stuff. Uh, the introit, or the entrance antiphon, uh, is prescribed for each Mass. And it's normally uh, a part of a psalm. Jesus, when he would have gone up to Jerusalem to pray to the temple, he would, he would have prayed these exact same psalms. There are certain psalms that you pray as you would enter Jerusalem or enter the temple. So the Mass begins normally uh, in its fullest sense with a, a, a chanted version of one of the psalms as we literally go up. Now, in, in the, the Mass after Vatican II, uh, it's allowed to be substituted with a, you know, another song or something. So that's why typically our experience is you, know, you pull out your hymnal and people sing something. But you might also experience from time to time a mass in which a, a scola or a choir would, would chant the, the entrance chant. Uh, that is the, the fullest form of the way mass begins. But then the first words of the priest, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, while making the sign of the cross. Sometimes I, I think people, just like kids especially, sometimes they're just like, like swatting flies or, you know, what even is this? And like, yeah, just... Whatever, we'll get on with it. Well, think about why the church put those as the first words of the Mass. It, it almost just seems to come out of nowhere. There's no introduction to it. 
There's no like, okay, now we're gonna, we're gonna all make the sign. It, it just starts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right away, probably the, the first thing we should think of when we hear that is that that is the formula of baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the reason the Mass starts with that is not so much, oh, we're, we're all gathered as we always gather in the name of the Father. No, or, or we pray now in the name of the Father. No, it's an announcement of the words of baptism. It reminds you, how did you come into the church? Why do you have any right to be here in the first place? Baptism. You were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So each Mass begins with an announcement of your baptism. That's why there's holy water at the doors. And then, yes, all those other things are true. We're, we're praying in the name of the Trinity. We're gathered in the name of the Trinity. Everything we do is in the name of the Trinity. Sure, fine. But first and foremost, you're baptized in that formula. So we start with the sign of the cross and we make a physical gesture. You know, this, that, that gesture of moving your hand, across, it, it not only marks your body with the cross, it's also an ancient gesture that back in the days when uh, it was illegal to be Christian and the church was celebrating the mass in secret, if you were to go knock on the door of the house where supposedly, you know, mass was taking place in secret, you know, the person would open the door and if you made the sign of the cross, that was kind of like the secret gesture that they would know you're not a Roman spy, you're not coming to arrest them. Only the, only the people who were in knew the, the sign. So the sign of the cross is also a way in which we, we remember we're, we're the in group. We've been baptized and that's not nothing. That's, that's everything. Uh, so we have that secret sign that we make as well. After that, almost as sh shockingly and jarringly, the, the first words then uh, are, are this greeting that it seems like it might just be throwaway. But the priest says, the Lord be with you. That uh, sometimes can get taken, you know, especially when we, we used to use that, that bad translation that said, and also with you. Um, it's almost like, hey, Lord be with you all. Hey, with you too, Father, also with you. As if it's almost like just a happy good morning. Morning, y'all, how are you doing? We're doing great, Father, how are you doing? You know, okay, that's a very <laughs> human kind of way that we might greet people. That is not what's going on in the Mass. Dominus vobiscum, the Dominus, the Lord, the word that we use for God in the scriptures, the Lord, the title of Jesus Christ. We're saying, may God, the Trinity, but the Lord be with you. It's a statement that the Lord is, in fact, to be with us and a prayer that it be more realized. So when the priest says, the Lord be with you, it's kind of like, wake up, stop and think. Jesus Christ is truly here with us. It's not just us in this building. All the angels and saints in heaven, a bunch of things we can't see, most especially the Lord himself. It's an acknowledgement. That's what we should stop and think of right now. And then that, that rather interesting response, et cum spiritu tuo, literally, and with your spirit. What's that spirit? Well, the reason that you talk about the spirit and you, you repeat it to the priest is because... The priest has been given a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit at his ordination to be able to do what he does at the Mass. Me is just little old Sean. How, how could I possibly think that I could take bread and wine and turn it into God? I can't do that. But through the Spirit given me at my ordination, now I've been empowered by God to stand in the very person of Christ. And now through the Spirit, yes, I can do things that no man can do, but the Spirit can. 
So I am asking you to be mindful that the Lord would be with you so that you all can do what you have to do at Mass. And then you're praying, yes, Father, and may the Lord also be with your spirit so that you, Father, can do what you need to do. It's a beautiful gift of the, the priesthood of all the baptized, which you have through your baptism, and then praying for the spirit given me in my ordination, that we have this mutual but different roles that we fulfill in the liturgy. So hardly just to throw away greeting there. That's why it's often chanted to, to emphasize the, the dignity of it. After that, uh, the priest asks something that seems like a little bit of a, a downer. We've just had this incredible, you know, acknowledgement, the Lord will be with us and all that. And, and then the priest says, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins. Let us acknowledge our, our sins. Well, that's not a very happy thought. Can't we kind of put that aside? Well, there's a reason why this is the first action that we, the first thing we're all going to do together, we're going to acknowledge our sins. And notice it's the priest too. The priest acknowledges his sins. Let us acknowledge our sins. Why? Well, because when we come to, to do what we're going to do in the liturgy, we acknowledge we're not worthy to do that. Who are we even to be here? We're a bunch of miserable sinners. You know, if the Lord is going to be with us, might not our response be, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Like St. Peter said when the Lord came to him. The devil loves to kind of speak in our ear and say, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. You're too sinful. The church throughout the liturgy invites the saints, the holy ones, through our baptism to come worship the one true God. The devil does not want that. He wants you to be focused on, no, you're not a saint. You're not worthy. So right away at the beginning of Mass, we all do a public confession of our sinfulness. And unlike society that always tries to make excuses to say, if something looks like it's my fault, it's not really my fault. It's somebody else's fault. I love it because the church is like, no, not just once, but three times we have to say, no, it's my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. And we even strike our breast. We're all required to do that, by the way. My fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa in Latin. We take and say, yes, it is that bad. Yes, I am a miserable, no good sinner. But through acknowledging that, we get it out of the way. And we hear Jesus say to us, no, you're forgiven. I know you're miserable, broken sinners. So let's put that aside. And now let's get on with the holy worship of God. It's a beautiful way to begin mass, to, to say we're not worthy. And say, okay, now you've done that. As a priest in a seminary once told me, uh, our first day at seminary, we all gathered that night for our first night at seminary. And he's like, some of you are probably thinking, maybe you're not worthy to be priests. Well, you're not. So just forget about that. I think that's a pretty good thing that we do at the beginning of Mass. Some of you might be worried. Maybe I'm not worthy to be here. Maybe I'm not the best Catholic. Yeah, you're not. So now just forget about that. And we're out of the way. And, and then we, we just we pray that, that beautiful prayer that the, uh, the story of the Pharisee and the publican, you know, the Pharisees in front thinking, oh, God, I'm so good. And there's that little guy in back, the scriptures tell us says he just beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he goes away justified. So the next thing that happens at mass is that prayer, Lord, have mercy. Uh, but we keep it in, in the Greek, curie uh, eleison. Some people think that's Latin. That's actually Greek. Remember I talked about all those Eastern churches? Well, before the church's liturgy was even in Latin, it was in Greek. In the early church, everyone spoke Greek for the first couple of centuries. So the reason why Kyrie eleison, some Greek, is kept in even the Latin liturgy 
is to remind ourselves that this, this liturgy goes back a long time and we are united with our, our Greek brothers and sisters in the Eastern churches and throughout time. So that's a, a little throwback that the Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, it, it stays in, in the Greek. That's why when I do it at mass, I normally keep it in the Greek, even though English is allowed. After that, we're done asking forgiveness for the time being. And so we can pray uh, the beautiful prayer of the angels, glory to God in the highest. Having been forgiven of our sins, now we're fit to praise God. And so we do with that, the hymn that the angels prayed when Jesus was born. After that, this is the last part. It finishes the intro to mass. There is this, this opening prayer. Now you might notice in your missiles that it's, it's got a special title. That opening prayer is called the collect. Literally to, to collect together, like you know, bringing things together. Because here's how it works. The priest says, let us pray. And then it says that there is to be silence so that everyone can pray. A lot of times I think the priest says, let us pray. And everyone's like, what's he doing up there? Did he lose his place? I don't know. Sometimes people think let us pray is like Latin for, hey, server, bring me the missile or something. No, it's actually very important for our participation in mass. The priest says, let us pray. And then shocking, you're supposed to pray. Now, what do we pray about? Here's, here's what you do. Every mass that you come to, you should come with some intention. What do you wanna pray for? Maybe there's problems in your family. Maybe there's things that you think are not going well and there's, you can't do anything about it. Well, ask God to do something about it. When the priest says, let us pray, I might think I'm gonna pray for uh, my, my kid who's struggling at school or my marriage is having difficulties. So there's problems at work or maybe I'm gonna pray, thank you God for this great thing that happened. Thank you God for this day. All that in that little silence after let us pray. And then, here's why it's called the collect. The priest prays that official prayer from the missal to collect together all the prayer that just happened. Let us pray, we pray. And then the priest prays that opening prayer called the collect that collects it all together. And having finished that, we give our assent by saying, amen, let it be. And then we all sit down and that finishes the introductory rites. So that's your little introduction to the introductory rites at Mass. Over the next few weeks, I'll, I'll go through some of the other parts of Mass. But notice just in this little intro, the background, what we do, it's, it's not arbitrary. It's been handed on. But the church desires not just that we, we come and we stand and we sit and we do what we're supposed to do. That, that's not the kind of participation the church wants. It wants you to understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, where it comes from, so that even in this formal ritual worship, you can ultimately draw close to our Lord at the level of the heart. And that this summit would then also be the source that which you go out and live the Christian life, inflamed by having worshiped God in this formal way, you can go out into the very informal world and live a very, very heart-filled relationship with Jesus. I hope today was, was helpful. And over the, the next uh, few weeks, we'll, we'll continue this discussion of the, the beautiful gift of, of the Mass, which we see John discuss in the Gospels of the upcoming weeks.